Hello, Discord and Rhyme listeners. Now that we have wrapped up our King Crimson series, we decided it's time for a little summer vacation, but we didn't want to leave you guys hanging. So here is a release from the Patreon vault. This one is on the theme of unexpected guitars. It fits into a pattern of episodes we tend to do a lot over there where we pick a fun category and talk about a bunch of songs that fit into that category one way or another. This is one that we've mentioned on the main feed a few times, and we thought you guys might enjoy finding out what the heck unexpected guitars even means. So we hope you enjoy this, and also tell us what other songs have unexpected guitars in them. If you like what you hear and you want more of these Mad Libs episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash discordpod. We've got a bunch of these there for you, and we've also done several on actual albums that you might enjoy. If you want to support the podcast, but Patreon just isn't your thing, you can go to discordpod.com slash support. And there's a bunch of options on there, including our merch store and a one-time donation through PayPal if you're interested in that. In the meantime, please enjoy these unexpected guitars. And we will be back with Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings in a couple of weeks. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to another super secret bonus episode on the super secret Discord and Rhyme bonus feed. I'm John McFerrin. I'm Mike DeFabio. And I'm Amanda Rogers. Amanda, what are we talking about today and why? Today we're talking about the vaguest Mad Libs category I have come up with yet, <laughs> which is unexpected guitars. Nobody expects the guitars. Exactly. <laughs> chief weapon is surprise. Surprise and fear. <laughs> Amplifiers and surprise are two weapons. <laughs> <laughs> so that is going to mean different things to each of us at different times. There are at least 12 different interpretations of the phrase unexpected guitars. And part of the fun of this episode is going to be learning the various definitions of that. All right. So, Amanda, why don't you kick us off? What did you pick for us to start? The first song we're going to talk about is the song that gave me this idea. And it is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by Gordon Lightfoot. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed when the gales of November came early. Now, I hope you guys aren't in a hurry to be anywhere, because <laughs> I, I seem to have written close to a thousand words about a song that I think is okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, this is the song that gave me for the, the idea for the episode. There are a lot of criticisms to be made about it, and I will get to those. 
And I disliked this for a long time. But then just a couple of years ago, I happened to hear it on the radio. I was in my car and I remember exactly where I was when this happened. And I thought, hang on a minute. That guitar is beautiful. And I listened to it. I got home and I listened to it again and again and again because I had never noticed how gorgeous that guitar sounds before. And then I thought... It would be really fun to make a podcast episode about fabulous guitars that you either didn't notice before or didn't see coming. And here we are today. (laughs) But before I talk about that anymore, let me just back up the truck a little bit and discuss Gordon Lightfoot, who is dearly beloved here in Canada. He had a bunch of hits here in the 60s, including Early Morning Rain, which was subsequently recorded by a million other people, including Elvis. And I think Elvis's version of that is actually the best one. I think his first hit in the U.S. was If You Could Read My Mind in 1970, and he was big through most of the rest of that decade. I didn't like him at all until (laughs) I moved to Canada after marrying into a family who likes Gordon Lightfoot quite a bit. So it was either learn to hate him less or go insane. (laughs) So I still can't stand If You Could Read My Mind, but Sundown is pretty great, and there are a bunch of other songs I like to varying degrees. Now, as I mentioned, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald was not one of those songs until very recently, and there's still a lot to dislike about it, primarily in the lyrics. But honestly, I'm going to start positive first, because the words are the only real flaw in the song. It's about a real shipwreck that happened in Lake Superior in 1975, and Lightfoot decided that was a sufficiently epic event to write an epic song about. It's written in the form of an English folk ballad, by which I mean a song that tells a story. And he even sticks to the traditional rhyme scheme and meter and whatnot. And he uses repeated phrases to maintain the theme. Like in this case, it's the the whatevers of November, the skies of November, the gales of November. In one case, the witch of November, which I like a lot. I think that's cool. It's a lot like if you've read the Odyssey, the repeated phrase, the wine dark seas, you know, it's the same kind of trick. And the song, the fact that a song as big and old fashioned as this one got to be as big of a hit as it did, it's pretty remarkable and strange. But let's remember this was the mid 70s when big songs were a lot more acceptable. Now, the problem is that even though he does a great job of using the form and the melody is good and it sounds terrific, this is produced really well. The lyrics are mostly just terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Humorist Dave Barry pointed out, as big freighters go, it was bigger than most as a major stinker. And he's right. But that is only the beginning. It's the words are just clumsy and awkward and real easy to make fun of, especially there's a part toward the end where he's describing the other Great Lakes. And he says, Michigan steams like a young man's dreams. Oh, no. (laughs) It's so bad. Oh, I missed that. I I somehow missed that one. It's islands and bays are for sportsmen. I'm like, oh, Gordon. (laughs) But on the other hand, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours is wonderful? So, you know, it's got its bright spots, but I really think the lyrics could have used a couple more passes (laughs) before this got set to tape. However, I think just about every other aspect of the song is really good. Right down to about halfway through, there's this strange little doodly doodly synth line that makes me think that Gordon Lightfoot had been spending a lot of time listening to Yes. Everyone was listening listening to Yes, even if they didn't. Exactly. It It was 1976. Everyone was listening to Yes. But listen in the background and you'll catch it. 
Captain wired in the Edwater coming oh, in, yeah. and the good ship and crew was in peril. Later that night, when his lights went out of sight, came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? And of course, the whole reason we are here, that guitar. It's played by Terry Clements, who is Lightfoot's guitarist for over 40 years, and that's him on most of the hits that you know. I'm not totally sure what exactly the lead guitar is, but there are some gorgeous pedal steel accents behind it that really elevate the whole thing. And Whatever all is going on, it's just almost unbearably beautiful. It sounds like wind and waves. And for anybody who's listening to the song and might be thinking, a boat sank in a lake, how big an event could it be? Let me just hit you with some facts about Lake Superior, okay? (laughs) The Great Lakes are immense. I am very, very fortunate to have spent almost all my life living among them. And they're they're basically inland seas. I mean, standing on the shore of any given Great Lake, you can't see the other side. And Superior in particular, it's a little hard to comprehend how big it is. In terms of surface area, it's the largest body of freshwater on the entire planet. And by volume, it's the third largest. And for those of you who live in Europe, I know we have a few of you listening, Lake Superior is the size of Austria. So when that storm came up and sank the Edmund Fitzgerald, which was indeed a big-ass freighter, bigger than most, I've heard tell, (laughs) they might as well have been on the ocean. And there's a line in the song, Superior, it said, never gives up her dead. And all the sailors are indeed still down there. The wreck is well over 500 feet underwater, and it's very, very cold, so it's best to just leave them there. However, and I can say this from experience— If you go to Pancake Bay Provincial Park in Ontario and hike up to the Edmund Fitzgerald Lookout, you can see the spot where the ship went down. And then you can go to a really spectacular beach there on Lake Superior and put on your headphones and listen to Terry Clements play this absolutely beautiful guitar. So I have a confession to make. Until we were starting to prepare for this, I had never heard this song. Oh, you never had? I I knew of it. I had, I had, it was one of those songs that anytime I would see it referenced, it would be in the context of, well, everyone obviously knows this song. And I would always have to just like kind of hide. It's like, I don't think I've ever heard this. And like, even when I started listening to this, like, if I've heard of this, it, it, it never registered. It, it didn't ring any bells. Yeah. Um, and to be fair, I've heard it a lot more in Canada than I did when I lived in the States. Yeah, that seems reasonable. But uh, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, I feel like as someone who lives in the upper Midwest, like I feel like I should have like at least tripped on it at some point. Um, I agree with pretty much all of your uh, your, your positive and negative critiques on it. Um, it you know, it, it actually has something in common with with a song I'm going to talk about uh, a little later. It, in terms of like being a thing where the the, the guitar part it's it's following the same. Uh, you know, basic template of the melody, but there's just something about the phrasing. There's just something, there's something about the warmth of the tone that, mm-hmm. um, that, that, that lifts the melody. Like when you strip the lyrics out, like there, you start having a sense of majesty that almost like in a way almost seems too good for the song. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I 
yeah, I, I don't think this will ever be one of my favorite songs, but I do think this is a really, really nice guitar part. So I, th I think it's a, a really, really good inspiration for this episode. Yeah, I'm actually not sure if I had heard this song before either. Like, it sounded vaguely familiar, but if if I'd ever heard it, it was, you know, in the background and I wasn't really paying much attention to it. Like, I'd, I'd certainly heard Sundown and If You Can Read My Mind, um, and I, I share your both your opinions of those. Um, <laughs> but uh, this one I had mostly read about in, in Dave Barry's book of bad songs. Uh, he hates this song. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I was, I was kind of surprised to, to see that we were going to be talking about it and also that it's kind of pretty good. Um, the it's, it's true about the lyrics. They're not great, but, uh, apart from the lyrics, you know, if you don't pay attention to those, this is almost a Decemberist song. <laughs> it, almost. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's at the harbor, but in the Great Lakes. <laughs> <laughs> it's well it's you know the difference being that you know Colin Malloy would never use the word gloomy when collisionous is right there <laughs> that's true um but yeah and he I, would really play up the witch of November a lot yes, more yes he would <laughs> but yeah I I agree with you about that guitar it's got that real uh real small kind of needly sound that you don't really hear in songs mm -hmm. anymore um and I would agree with with John, how it kind of, it is sticking to the melody, but it, you know, it adds these guitar-y little swoops and bends and things to, to make it, you know, add a little extra resonance to it. Yeah. And I, I enjoy when, when guitar solos do that. Like if you can do it well, Hey, don't, don't need to mess with a good thing. And, uh, that also <laughs> that synthesizer in the background. Yeah. It, it does. Remind me of yes. Also makes me think of something that would have been on Ween's The Mollusk. Hundred percent. Oh yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I like the title track was, of The Mollusk. Kind of sounds like that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> this, wow. Yeah, this must have been something they were listening to at the time. And like you. Know, Ween are not above, you know, being influenced by Gordon Lightfoot. Like, they are admitted no. No, fans of bread. I'm so happy you guys were as positive about that song as you were, because it's <laughs> just, it's so easy to dislike. Sure. Until it's easy you to, pay attention to it. It's easy to make fun of, but th there's, there's plenty to like, too. Yes. I, and that's why I have, I have very complicated feelings about the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, because <laughs> it's so close to being an all-time classic. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody had helped him with the lyrics. Yeah. All right, I think we're done here. Mike, what's your first choice? My first choice is by our old friends Funkadelic. Woo! This is from their 1975 album, Let's Take It to the Stage, and it's called Get Off Your Ass and Jam.
You're just running as far away from the Edmund Fitzgerald as you can get. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> this song has the best lyrics I've ever heard. It does. <laughs> so if you remember way back, if you've been listening that long, uh, we talked about, we, we did a whole episode on Funkadelic where we talked about the monstrous guitar talents of Eddie Hazel. And for a long time, I thought, I, I just assumed Eddie Hazel was playing guitar on this song. But the truth is a little bit more complicated. As it turns out, uh, for a long time, nobody knew who played guitar on this song. The way George Clinton told the story, and he's not always the most reliable narrator. But according to George Clinton, this guy just wandered into the studio who needed money for drugs, offered to play guitar, and he just peeled off this ripping solo in one take, uh, got paid $50 for it, and then left without telling anybody his name. And that was all anybody knew for a long time. And then in 2009, uh, a guitar player named Paul Warren came forward and said it was, it was him who played the solo. And I did some digging around in the pages of my favorite scholarly resource, which is YouTube comments. <coughs> and I found this comment, which I will read for you in full. Quote, it was Paul Warren playing the lead on this song. I know because I am Paul Warren. I was playing with Rare Earth at the time, who had the same management as P-Funk. I was 21. When asked why Eddie wasn't doing it, I was told he was in jail for drugs. The track was already cut, and my solo was an overdub. Clinton told me to just go, and it was done in one take. I used a 60s Sunburst Les Paul, a Marshall Stack, and a Wah. I got paid $50 cash. My name is on the album under alumni. Unquote. <laughs> That's just one person's statement, but uh, if you can't trust some guy on the YouTube comments, then who <laughs> can you trust? Indeed. And <laughs> until somebody else comes forward and says, no, it was actually me. Uh, I'm going to take that as who did it. It was Paul Warren, who was a, a session musician in Detroit around that time. So, it, you know, checks out. Well, what do you know? Yeah. Matt, what do you think of this? It's so good. <laughs> Aside from the two albums we talked about, however many years ago that was, I still haven't really gotten into Parliament and Funkadelic, so I hadn't heard this until Mike added it to this episode. And the first time I turned it on, I had my headphones turned up too loud, and that intro hurts. Yeah. It's not, it wasn't included on the clip we just played because we don't want to do that to you guys. It's this horrid screeching sound. But... Once I got past that, and that's also unexpected, so you know it, it <laughs> it's true, fits. But yeah, once I got past that, I was immediately on board. <laughs> the thing that always mildly surprises me about both of those bands is how funny they are. Yeah, like this isn't a novelty song at all, but it's hilarious. And good lord, that guitar is just on fire! Like there's visible smoke coming out of my speakers right now. Yeah. And as good as that story that George Clinton told is, I mean, I have a feeling he just wasn't letting the truth get in the way of it. Yeah, he's he's been known to embellish things. Or maybe Paul Warren did just walk in that day and say, hey, hey I need 50 bucks for drugs. I can play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, both stories could be true. But however it happened, that is just a fabulous mystery for a solo that you would think dozens of guitarists would be trying to claim credit for. Right. I have no idea 
what whether I should think that that story is right. But it's still real to me, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the best stories I've ever come across in anything related to rock and roll or anything closely related to it. Oh, the solo's so good. It's like white. It's it's like like there's some solos you listen to, and it's like I'm listening to the guitar version of a flamethrower right now, or yeah. or something that's just dripping like white hot plasma, and like you you just had to stay away from it. It's 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 so hot. It it it, <laughs> it, it doesn't feel like it, it's gonna peter out at all. I, I I it's like the idea that like he just could have kept going as long as they needed to, and he just you know in whatever state of mind he was in, he was just gonna keep doing that <laughs> yeah. and similar things. <laughs> It's wonderful. I, you know, this, this is a song I, I know I'd, I'd, I'd heard before. I, I hadn't thought of it um, in a long time. I ha- and I have it on my iPod. I have this album on my iPod, but I hadn't uh, thought of this uh, this song apart from the name and and the vocal hook. And coming back to it and, and paying attention to the guitar, it's like, oh wow, this is even better than I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and with with regard to that horrible squealing noise at the beginning go and listen to this whole song. You might actually be familiar with that squealing noise because it was sampled by Public Enemy in Bring the Noise. Of course and, it was. Which it certainly does. <laughs> <laughs> so it was an excellent choice. All right, it's my turn. Uh, for my first selection here, I want to talk about Amazona by Roxy Music. my selections uh the criteria that i decided to go with um because again i couldn't entirely piece together what i was supposed to be looking for so i just just made up my own rules uh was essentially that uh i wanted to 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 pick songs where i especially love the guitar i find it notable but where the song associated with it you know would almost certainly never make a li- any sort of list of greatest guitar songs because it doesn't fit the standard criteria of what usually goes into that so amazona was actually the first one that i thought of for this oh. uh phil manzanera the guitarist for roxy music is a lock for one of my 10 favorite guitarists he might be in the top five for me uh depending on my mood he, he he's very versatile and he, he he's he's kind of like a like almost a funkier version of Robert Fripp. Like they both yeah. appeared on a lot of uh, Brian Eno session work. Uh, they have a lot mm-hmm. in common with each other. Uh, you know, I, I love that this, this is a, a Latin ish uh, song and he, he, he's able to play around that uh, pretty well. And then we get to the midsection. We're going to, we have quite the clip for you.
listeners, that is my single favorite song to play air guitar to. Hmm, it has awesome. been for a very, very long time. And years ago, uh, when I when I uh, wrote about Roxy Music uh, back around 2005, I think to to crib from what I wrote about this song, in particular the uh, the guitar sound, the, the the sort of flushing guitar sound, and I said. I described it as uh, a sound that comes from more processing than what's given to a tax return from somebody claiming his pet rock as a dependent. (laughs) There's there's just so much, uh, just, just there's so many effects. There's so, there's so much oddness uh, going into that sound. Just, you know, so many, uh, I, 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 again, I have no idea exactly what would go in uh, to doing that, but the like, sort of thing going on. And then like the, 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 just the emergence of this piercing high. Like, I, I absolutely adore the guitar part of the song. Like there's a, there's a lot of, of Roxy music songs with great guitar, but this is the one that I always think of first. I have never really investigated Roxy Music, but I feel like I should. Yeah. You've picked their songs before for these episodes, and I've always liked them. And I like this one. Uh, It's Brian Ferry singing, right? Yeah. Yeah. He always sounds so much like David Bowie to me. Yes. And these songs kind of tend to sound Bowie-ish, too, in, in a good way. And... I mean, like you said, John, that guitar is just freaking wild. It doesn't that that midsection doesn't fit. It's like a piece from not just a different song, but a different universe got dropped in. Well, the other thing that's really funny about it to me is that that when then the when the song comes back at the very end, he's still playing with that 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 weird uh flushing yeah. guitar sound on top of it. It's just like, nope, I'm going to graft this into it. I don't care if it doesn't really <laughs> belong here. It's yeah. here now. We're going to hammer it in whether it fits or not, and then somehow it fits. I noticed when I read there's a little Wikipedia page for the song. It's very small. And there's credits for treatments. In yeah. parentheses, a couple people are credited with guitar parentheses and treatments. What does that mean? I think that means just assorted. Like when when Brian Eno was in Roxy Music, part of his job was he had all everybody's instruments plugged into his synthesizer, and he would mess with the sounds that way. Oh, I wondered if that just meant making stuff sound weird. I think it, that pretty much does. Yeah, I think it's just okay. an arty way of saying that. You see the same credit uh, on uh, Peter Gabriel's third album. I think Larry Fast is credited with treatments. I love it. What do I have to do on the podcast to get credited with treatments? (laughs) And just something generally to know with with the Roxy Music dynamic, um, after Brian Eno left, everybody in the band was still on good terms with him. Except for yeah. Brian Ferry, but mm. like the rest of them would would appear uh, in in collaborations with him all the time. So they were they were definitely on the same wavelength as him. So the idea that you know they would they would say like you know we're we're still going to do the similar things in terms of uh, doing wild things from with the sound as as needed, and and maybe maybe Brian Ferry will tolerate it more if it's coming from us and not from Brian. Mm. You know. Oh, I feel like w- with this being their their first album after Eno left, it, I, I feel like they were really making an effort to say, yeah, that that other Brian's gone now, but we're still Roxy Music and we're still from the future. There's that that guitar just sounds like it's being beamed down from space. Yeah, uh, like if if Roxy Music have a color, it's that 
silvery metallic, yes. like the, co- the, the color of a Pop-Tart wrapper. Well, I always think of this music as uh, kind of uh, like the, if I were going to describe Roxy music, I would say it's if if you had somebody who grew up watching the Jetsons and they wanted, <laughs> you wanted them to guess what the rock music of 2040 and 2050 would sound like, they'd come up with something along the lines of Roxy music. Yeah, it's yeah. Total space age. Uh, yeah, I love Amazona. This is it's one of my favorite songs to drive to. Although it's it's dangerous, you know, it's it's hard not to floor it when that mix, midsection comes in. But uh, mm-hmm. that that flushy guitar sound you mentioned, I can't tell if they're using just like a if they just have it plugged into a, like a phaser effect or if it's a synthesizer. Or my other guess is that they're just doing it straight on the mixing board. They've got sure. like a like a sweepable bandpass and they're just twiddling the knob like that. It, it could be any number of things, but it still it still sounds like the future. I still don't know what it is. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's a fantastic song. One of my favorites from them. Good, John, bring in the Roxy music deep cuts. I like That's it. That's right. Love it. All right, Amanda, we're back to you. What's next? Back to me. The other song that made me think of the category for this episode, one of the best guitar songs of all time. This is "Reeling in the Years" by Steely Dan. <laughs> Except for this song, which I am crazy about. I've said before that a significant proportion of my life force consists of the guitar tone in Real and in the Years. <laughs> that guitar is widely considered to be among the best of all time. The solo is so good that Jimmy Page has said it's his very favorite guitar solo ever. So what the hell is it doing here in an episode called Unexpected Guitars? It's because... Everybody knows this guitar sound, but hardly anybody can name the guitarist. Mike, yeah. I bet you can. Well, see, I always assumed it was Skunk Baxter because he, he did so much other guitar with Steely Dan. But it, it turned out I was wrong. Who is it? It's not. This is a session player named Elliot Randall who played guitar on everything with everybody, but has never joined a band, except he was a touring member of Sha Na Na for a few minutes. <laughs> That's the closest he's ever come. People kept on asking him. He was invited to be in Steely Dan, but he said, no, the vibes in this room are such that I don't think this band is going to last. And what do you know? (laughs) Well, it was kind of right. Yeah. (laughs) 
And they broke up shortly afterward. And he was asked to be a founding member of Toto. Dan Aykroyd asked him to be the musical director of the Blues Brothers. Every time he was like, nah. Huh. And I wonder if he just likes variety. This guy has played with Yoko Ono, Kirsty McCall, Tom Rush, Asia, and Gene Simmons, <laughs> just to name a few. And you don't get that much chance to stretch your creative abilities in so many different directions by sticking with just one band. And I guess that is how you lay down one of the smokinest guitar lines in rock history in one take without <laughs> hardly anybody knowing exactly who you are. And that seems like a pretty great way to go about it, if you ask me. Yeah. So I did not uh, get to be on the the Sealy Dan episode, except uh, in the in the opening teaser, which was a lot of fun. Um, but I like Steely Dan a lot. Um, they're, they're a band where I really like their albums, but I almost I, I like them more if I think them of them as a box set band. Like mm. even, even though I really like their albums, like I feel like their the, their total quality like transcends um, the, the the aggregate quality of their albums. Like there, there's kind of just like a gen, a general overall philosophy to them that um, you know I, I can understand why some people would would find it maybe too cold and sterile, but I I think it's really mm-hmm. uh, interesting and intriguing. I love this song, um, you know, for all the reasons you said. I I. I, I you know, you know, Steely Dan, you know, fascinates me because of like even early on when they were still a band and not just uh, Fagin and Decker and an army of constantly rotating session musicians. Like even though they were a band, like they still um, were were willing to, to to stretch and say like, you know, if we can't get the perfect uh, guitar approach uh, from what's within, we're we're not afraid to to look outside and see what we can get there. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a great uh, guitar melody. It's a great guitar tone. It's fantastic, Mike. Well, you know how sometimes you can hear a song so many times that you it gets completely worn out and it has no effect yeah. on you anymore. Reeling in the years is not one of those songs. <laughs> nope. I've, I don't know how many times I've heard this song over the course of my life, and I still absolutely love it. Uh, I was on the Steely Dan episode and. Part of my That's pers- why I thought maybe you could name the guitarist. You're the biggest Steely Dan fan in the room. <laughs> I, so many people play on Steely Dan songs that I never have any idea. Um, mm. you know, I, I just know Becker and Fagan are involved in some capacity. But um, <laughs> I, I mentioned as part of my personal history that you know, getting into Steely Dan kind of involved realizing how many songs I already knew and liked by them. And Reeling uh-huh. in the Years was, was one of them. You know, I, I heard it so much and I always like, oh, yeah, this song. I like this one. But, you know, DJs on the radio never tell you who anything's by because they're just they just care about the moolah. So, I, you know, it, it, the same thing happened with Queen. Like it, it it's, you know, I checked out a, a Queen compilation from the library and realized, all these songs are by the same band. What? Yeah. <laughs> and Steely Dan was like that for me. Um, but I love reeling in the years. I, I think it's a smoking hot solo. Nothing really more to add about that. But boy, is that a great it's like it's one of those guitar tones that's so distorted that it comes all the way back around and sounds pure. Yes, it's I, I, I love guitar sounds like that. And it's um, as pure as the driven slush. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
If you if you like reeling in the years, you you must hear the song "So It Goes" by Nick Lowe, because it is a bald face ripoff of reeling in the years, and he knows you know it's a ripoff of reeling in the years, and he doesn't care. <laughs> Security's so tight tonight. Oh, they're ready for a tussle. Gotta keep your backstage passes. I guess I gotta respect that. Yeah. <laughs> All right, it's my turn. Uh, my next choice is Like a Hurricane by Neil Young. So Like a Hurricane uh, was written in 1975, uh, and it was released on an album called American Stars and Bars a couple of years later. I do not have that album. I uh, have this song on his amazing compilation, Decade. So Neil Young is 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 an interesting uh, figure for me in my collection because I have a lot, a lot of Neil Young, and I have nowhere near enough uh, to be called like a hardcore fan. There's just so much Neil Young. There's so much. Like even before you get to the late period, it's just like, wow, he had another one. Oh, he had another one. And, <laughs> and there, you know, I have most of what's considered the, the, the really, really major ones that I've filled in some other gaps here and there, but you know, there's a lot of other stuff to get to. Uh, so like a hurricane is, is a fascinating song to me because it, it has it basically like it's, that melody that we heard already um, over and over again. And the album version is eight minutes long and there's, there's a shorter single at it, but the, the, the version I uh, care about is the album version. And if it's that melody more or less over and over, one might reasonably wonder, well, how are you going to get eight minutes out of this? And the way you're going to get eight minutes out of this is with passages like this. This song is almost like 
well, I, I, I mean, I don't have an exact tally, but I estimate it's at least 70% guitar. And it's that, it's that guitar part just um, absolutely gushing, like an over, over, over the top amount of, of weeping, just, just absolutely uh, ecstatically sad emotion just, just for the entire time. And part of me thinks like, you know, in, in theory, if I were to describe this song on paper, I'd say like, oh, maybe I'd, I'd get tired of it and, and it would get excessive. And I just don't. Like, I really have a strong weakness for Neil Young's uh, approach and his tone. Obviously, like, I, I know that Neil Young fans you know, love this song. This and, and there's there's a reason that this one you know keeps appearing uh, in his live shows over and over again. But if you were to ask like just someone who casually knows Neil Young, I don't think this would necessarily rank very high in uh, ones that they would say of like songs that they think of first from him. I don't know for sure what my favorite Neil Young song is, but this is on the very short list for me. Um. And so, yeah, I wanted to I wanted to include this one because this one, again, is almost exclusively just weeping, sobbing guitars. And it gets by on that for eight minutes and it never loses me. So when I first saw that uh, John had had put down like a hurricane on the, the list of songs for this episode, I, my first thought was really Neil Young. He's unexpected. You know, I thought he was. You know, he was he was kind of universally revered as a as a guitar guy. But then I saw he, he is listed on the the Rolling Stone list of however many greatest guitar players ever. But he is not, not only ranked below Stephen Stills on the list, but quite a ways down. So maybe maybe he's he's not recognized as much as he should be. I I really. Yeah, this this is a great song. I'm, I've always been much more of a fan of guitar epic Neil Young than folky singer songwriter Neil Young. Yeah, I've and, come around on folky singer songwriter Neil Young, but guitar yeah. epic is is where I started with him. Yeah, it's you know when when you're a kid and you hear you know Heart of Gold and Old Man Look at My Life, you know it's it's not the most exciting stuff. You know, I, I appreciate it much more now, but for a long time I I thought I didn't like Neil Young because I thought it was just like the soft whiny stuff like a hurricane is terrific it's a great example of how neil young can do almost nothing for like eight minutes yes and have it and have it be the most amazing emotional experience of your life like he he does so much with so little and i especially like the version i also don't own uh, American stars and bars but i do have the live album weld i do which too ha- so which good. has a Fantastic version of Like a Hurricane. If you haven't uh, investigated Neil Young very much uh, and you like loud guitars, get Weld right now. It's so good. It's It was recorded. He's with Crazy Horse. Uh, he was touring. He, Sonic Youth were opening for him on that tour. It's just, uh, just a, a fire hose of guitar. It's absolutely fantastic. All right, Amanda, what about you? Well, first things first, I, in general, don't like Neil Young. Not shocking. And this is, <laughs> it's really not. Uh, but it does tend to enrage Neil Young fans. <laughs> 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 uh, it's one of those cases where it's very easy to see that he is incredibly good at what he does. But 
What gets in my way is I hate his voice. Sure. Understandable. And a lot of people do and can work around that, but I just can't. It's a lot like how I feel about Radiohead. Hmm. But every now and again, Neil Young comes out with a song that is just so good that it gets through even to me. I mean, and not that he cares. It doesn't mean that much to him <laughs> to mean that much to me. Well uh, and this is one of the songs that it broke through to me eventually. And it's because so much of it is that guitar and padding out a song with guitar noodling is something that usually gets on my nerves, but this is really good guitar. No- I wouldn't even call it noodling. It's all very purposeful. And it does sound like the guitar is sobbing and it's yeah. it, with that relentless drum line behind it. It's, I don't know, this just works. And I didn't know it before, but I'm glad I know it now. It's one of the Neil's, one of the handful of Neil Young songs that I will voluntarily listen to again. Awesome. <laughs> one last thing I want to mention before we move on. Among the many groups that have covered this at some point is none other than Roxy Music. Huh. Oh, yeah? Yes, they did. They, they covered it um, on the Avalon tour. And there is a version that was released um, on an album called Heart Still Beating. It's fine, uh, but it's 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 re- it's a really it's a different version. But um, you know, Manzanera is again still a great guitarist, and he he does some some good things with it. So hoping you were going to say Nazareth. <laughs> Alas. All right. Mike, what do you got for us? The next song I've got is by St. Vincent. It's from her 2014 self-titled album. It's called Huey Newton. First off, uh, Huey Newton is a song about uh, a time when Annie Clark, a.k.a. St. Vincent, uh, got really high on Ambien and hallucinated that the ghost of Huey P. Newton came into her, her, her bedroom and the two of them had a really deep conversation about the Internet. Sure. Okay. Which is, yeah, kind, kind of <laughs> kind of the most St. Vincent thing ever. Like, make no mistake, <laughs> Annie Clark might not look like she has ever gone outside, but uh, yes, f- this former member of the polyphonic spree is 100% down with the struggle. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's any secret at this point that, that Annie Clark can play. I mean, she's kind of a celebrity at this point. She's, her, her guitar skills are, are well known, but unexpected guitars are kind of her thing. Like, she's... Her, her songs are full of guitars that 
do unexpected things or show up at unexpected moments. And this clip we just heard, that's from about two and a half minutes into the song, which until that point has been very, uh, very electronic, very cold and futuristic. And then out of nowhere, the gnarliest guitar sound just blasts out at you. Annie Clark has said in interviews that that she really likes uh, what she calls abortion-y guitar sounds. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) wonderful. And, uh, she's also said that one of her biggest influences as a guitar player is Robert Fripp. Damn right. It is. (laughs) Especially his work on David Bowie's scary monsters, which is full of just nasty ass guitar playing. So yeah, you can, you can draw a direct line between the two. St. Vincent is somebody I don't listen to as much as I used to because she's ever since she started working with Jack Antonoff, she's she she's very talented, but she has started making music that I just don't like as much. And also, she's just kind of an annoying rich person. But she had a a trio of albums, uh, starting with uh, actor in in 2009 and ending with this one for about five years. She was pretty fantastic and Kind of, she kind of seemed like she was getting ready to take over for David Bowie. Ended up not doing that, but th- those three albums I still think are pretty great. Matt, what do you think? This is another case where it, I want to like Saint Vincent. Really, hmm. I do, but for some reason, she usually leaves me cold. Certainly, her more recent stuff that I've heard, but even those three earlier albums that you mentioned, Mike. For some reason, I just can't connect to her music. I'm not totally sure why. Um, I am not sure how I feel about this particular song. It doesn't honestly do much for me overall, but that guitar sure is unexpected. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, most of the song is kind of a bloopy synth rock number. Like I didn't see this coming at all. And so I was listening to the song thinking, okay, why is this here? Oh, that's why. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody expects the grimy metal prog guitar. And I did already know that she is a terrific guitarist, thanks to a video uh, that, Mike, you shared a while back of her playing Tool's song 46 and 2 yes. on an acoustic guitar. And it sounds amazing. Part of the video just made me melt. Oh, I know. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I, I don't know if I like this or not, but I respect it a whole hell of a lot. And I think that guitar is really great. Yes, yeah, so I like St. Vincent a lot. Uh, my brother pushed her pretty hard on me, I don't know, seven, eight years ago. And, and his pitch uh, was more or less, you know, imagine a, a modern female David Bowie who plays guitar like a cross between Robert Fripp and Prince. Hmm. Oh, that's the way to get you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, I'm intrigued. Um, again, again, like I, I, you know, I, I don't think about her a lot, but most of what I've heard from her, I, I like, I, I haven't heard her, her, her last album. I actually quite liked 
much of mass seduction, even though I know that started to be a little d- divisive uh, for people. But yeah, I like this song a lot. I, I, again, I like the the fact that you had this you know this tight electronic groove, and then all of a sudden she just drops the hammer. Yeah. And the thing is, like the the hammer, like doesn't even like come to the forefront of the sound necessarily. It's just like this the this this pounding anvil, like kind of in the in the middle of the back, but it still like makes itself really, really, really known. I think it's just because it's so low and so growly and grumbly that it presents itself, it forces upon uh, itself upon you in a different way than than some other guitar parts might. See, I, I I'm a big fan of the guitar in this song. All right, Amanda, what is your next selection? My next selection is the live performance of Big Love by Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Looking out for love in the night so still. Oh, how build you kingdom in that house on the hill. This is taken from The Dance, the live album slash concert film that Fleetwood Mac put out in 1997. And this is my personal favorite moment on the whole damn thing. Lindsey Buckingham is shredding that acoustic guitar. And I I know what everyone is saying. You're saying, Amanda, we already know that Lindsey Buckingham is a mind-blowing guitar player. What on earth is unexpected about this? The reason it's here is because if you knew this song from the Tango in the Night album, or if you had their greatest hits collection like I did, you would never ever see this coming Mm -mm. because the album version sounds like this. Like where where the hell did this even come from? I believe he had started performing it this way on his solo tours in about 1993, but I'm honestly not sure how closely anybody was paying attention to Lindsey Buckingham's solo tours. So for most of the world, this was a huge surprise. My dad used to say that you can tell how good a guitarist really is by how well they play acoustic since there's nothing to hide behind. And I don't play the guitar at all, so I don't know how much truth there is in that, but it's something that's always stuck in my head and it's something I listen for. And this might be the best acoustic guitar performance I've ever heard in my life. That is one guy on one guitar playing and singing at the same time. And then comes the solo. you can hear the audience starting to lose their minds. (laughs) I like how they left that in. And I know that this album, there was significant studio polishing that went on after their performance. So I wouldn't be surprised if they cleaned up the vocal takes some, but I mean, 
you can't just invent that guitar part out of thin air. You know, that's that's real. That's, again, one guy with only two hands playing one guitar, and it absolutely blows my mind. And there are actually... That was the first reason why I picked the song. There's actually another reason, but first I want to hear what you guys think of it, and then I'll talk about that other reason. So I love this. I've had the dance uh, for a very long time, and I actually didn't hear the the original studio version until the last couple of years. A couple of years ago, I decided I should finally hear Mirage and Tango in the Night, um, just a, a sort of completionist thing. Um, and the studio version was fine. I asked, like, okay, well, I guess it was the '80s. This is what people were doing because I knew, I knew the, uh, the 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 live version of Big Love, and you know, it's it's absolutely a highlight on that set. And mm-hmm. you know, when when I think about like uh, guitarists taking um, songs that weren't originally acoustic and then doing a total transformation on on it of it for 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 live performance on acoustic guitar i actually have a a, a comparison point that that occurred to me and it, again it's a totally different type of music but I, I think it kind of holds uh so in 2003 uh when when yes was touring steve howe uh decided to break out an acoustic a four minute acoustic guitar reduction of to be over <laughs> He would play. He would play this as part of the acoustic breaks, and it's one of my favorite things um, that I've ever heard Steve Howe play. Because he takes this 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 piece that was originally in the guitar, just this this uh, very complex, very long, uh, complicated uh, set of parts, and he preserves the gist of it, but he boils it down uh, to the acoustic guitar. And like when he takes some of the the more gnarly riffage of the the, the, the original from Relayer and he's doing these things on acoustic guitar like it just it gets everybody into a tizzy and rightly so and I and I feel a similar thing with with what Buckingham with what Buckingham is doing uh, in this context uh, it's it's incredible it's amazing Mike what do you think this is one of two guitar performances that I can say quite literally stopped me in my tracks. When I encountered them, yeah. uh, the other one being uh, the version of "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" with Prince. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bo- both of those. Th- there was a, a similar. That would have fit on this episode too. Yeah. <laughs> both both of those. Uh, th- there was a similar situation for me with both of those, which was I was walking through the house and they just happened to be on TV, and wherever mm-hmm. I was going, I wasn't going there anymore. I had to to stop and watch what was happening. This version of of Big Love. I hadn't really gotten into Fleetwood Mac yet. You know, I I knew most of the songs on Rumors because I was alive, but uh, <laughs> I I hadn't come to the realization that they were great. They were just kind of a band that existed. And this was what made me realize, oh, th- these guys might be actually kind of great. And I had I had never heard the original version of Big Love. So I didn't know I didn't know where this came from. But it, it blew me away, not just how well he's playing and and what he's physically doing but just the intensity behind it all the the sustained intensity for the entire song it just smolders it sounds like he's gonna burn a hole in the stage 
And I think my favorite thing about it is the ending, because if you listen to the the original studio version of Big Love, uh, it's got these very corny uh, sort of sex noises ah, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And all synthesized and manipulated and yeah, sounding really dumb. Very, yeah. very, very 80s in not a great way. And then live, he turns that part into just this series of just raw animalistic howls that just sounds like he sounds like he's going to spontaneously combust. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and he just stops dead because if he went any, if he's played anymore, he might. It's, it's so raw that it's almost embarrassing to listen to. Yeah. And that's, I, well, we'll get to talk about this more when we do our rumors episode, but uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in Fleetwood Mac songs where they, the, the songs might sound all smooth and, and soft and nice to listen to, but there's so much just churning emotion below the surface. There's so yeah. much intensity once you actually pay attention to it. And this mm -hmm. is, it's just, it's all out there. So reason number two that I picked this song is so that I can correct an error that I made back in the L King episode. I talked about the bluegrass versus claw hammer styles of finger picking, and I got them really wrong. <laughs> they do sound a little bit different from each other, but it's not as easy to tell as in the examples that I played in this episode. And once I, I learned more about it later on and was really embarrassed to the point where I have considered re-recording that part, but I didn't want to put everybody else to all that work. So I'm just going to correct it here. Um, a while back, I found a video where Bella Fleck and Abigail Washburn demonstrate the differences. I'm going to include a link to that in the show description here because it's really cool. And if you're going to listen to anybody explain how to play the banjo, it should be them and not me. Yeah. But where I'm going with this is that Lindsey Buckingham plays claw hammer style. And what you actually do for that is like you make your hand into a fist. It's like like this. This visual demonstration is very, very helpful to our <laughs> podcast listeners, I'm sure. Like make your hand into a fist and punch the ground. <laughs> and then you strike downward with your first two fingers to hit the strings and pluck the bass string with your thumb. So when you watch the video of Lindsey Buckingham playing Big Love, because of the way he holds his hand, you can hardly see what he's doing. It just, it looks like he's just moving his hand up and down. You can't see what his fingers are doing. But the funny thing is, he does not make this look effortless. That man is working hard. Yeah. I mean, he's like a cartoon character with sweat coming off him like a fountain. And it's just, it's honestly really cool to watch. I'm going to put a YouTube link in the episode description here. And oh, just, yeah. I'm sure a lot of you listening have seen this, but if you haven't, you must. And if you have, you must watch it again. <laughs> All right, Mike, back to you. What do you have for us? All right. Well, this this might not seem like an unexpected guitar because it's it's by somebody with the word guitar in his name. <laughs> but uh, you might not expect uh, him to do what he does with the guitar. This is Guitar Slim with The Story of My Life.
Well, I'd rather be so the only reason I, I even know this song exists is that it's been mentioned by Frank Zappa as one of his biggest influences. Oh. And boy, can you hear it. Uh, this, this song came out in 1954, which, I mean, most people put the, the beginning of rock and roll, you know, around 1955. So it wasn't even really a, a thing yet. And here he is playing like Zappa. I mean, yeah, his his name is Guitar Slim. So, yeah, you'd, you'd better be good if you're calling yourself that. But wow, I'm not even sure what else to say about it. It's just he the way that he he he's not playing on top of the beat and he's not playing around the beat. He's just like plowing right through the beat like it's a <laughs> he's driving through a brick wall or something. I think what what Zappa said about him is that he he really sounds like he's mad at somebody like he's like he's just reading you the riot act he's telling you how he really feels and he really does i don't know really what else to say about it than that i mean just i was not expecting that it is unexpected guitar yeah for sure like i I wouldn't have made this app a connection if you hadn't said it and now that you've said it, i can't unhear it yeah (laughs) because on a certain level it's like okay well it's, it's just creative blues playing but it's like no there's just there's an extra level of intensity and but also like almost spastic energy but like controlled spastic energy, yeah. Um, to it that that would definitely characterize Zappa going forward. So yeah, that 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 connection makes a lot of sense to me, and yeah, it's really enjoyable. I could not, for the life of me, figure out what was unexpected about this guitar until I looked up Guitar Slim on Wikipedia because I'd never heard of him before, and that was when I realized how early this was. Yeah, and I was like, oh yes, that is extremely unexpected. <laughs> I mean, it's not just the guitar tone, but the production of this record is so clear. It's very, yeah, it's really well produced. It is if for that time period. Like it's mind blowing. I would have guessed it was mid to late sixties. Yeah, yeah. Is it sounds a lot like you know like Eric Clapton blues guitar. It's, but, uh, yeah, it sounds like you you would hear you would expect to hear it on like a Buddy Guy album or something. Yeah, yeah, and that's and you know the next thing I was going to say was you know if Eric Clapton heard this he would just pee his pants you know. <laughs> but, so yes, that part was extremely unexpected, and when I read that, sorry I don't mean to hijack your song, but that was when I realized I should have included Sister Rosetta Tharp in this episode. Oh uh, yes. She was another early, early, early electric guitar pioneer starting in like the late 30s, I think, and influenced like everybody you could think of. Um, I'll drop a short clip in uh, of her playing up above my head on TV sometime in the 60s in which she plays a distorted guitar solo that, again, would have made all those British guitar gods just, you know, wet themselves and cry. so fun so many of the early early rock pioneers are completely forgotten yeah and they had such a small 
audience to begin with. And so it just all depends on who happened to get recorded and then who happened to be listening to those recordings and whether their names got repeated down the line. And I'm always really delighted when I find new rock and roll pioneers from way back when. So this is cool. Yeah, I've I've seen that video of Sister Rosetta Tharp playing up above my head. And the reaction I had was, why have I not heard of this person? Like, mm-hmm. I, I should have been told yeah. that she existed. Yeah, she's frequently called the godmother of rock and roll. She's there are by some reckonings, you could say she started it all. It's yeah, yep. it's incredible to watch. Yeah, we've talked about her briefly before on the podcast, but one of these days, maybe we should just dedicate an episode to Sister Rosetta. Yeah, it, it, like when you watch her play, it, it it almost seems a mistake that it's as early as yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's one of those things where, where time accidentally bent on itself and, and forgot to unstick or something. Yeah, and there's so much yeah. joy in her playing, too. Yeah. She's, she's unbelievable. All right, it's my turn. We are going to talk about Orion by Metallica. All right. All right. Orion is from the 1986 Metallica album Master of Puppets, uh, which came in the, the the middle of just an incredible run of metal majesty. And the thing to know about uh, the albums Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets and uh, later on Justice for All uh, is that uh, in terms of album flow, uh, they were... It, it almost sounds punitive to call them formulaic, but they had a template. And, and part of that template was that they would have a lengthy instrumental near the end. On Ride the Lightning, it was the final track with Orion and uh, To Live Is To Die on the next album. It was it was the second to last track. And these instrumentals are always highlights. Now, you know, Metallica is clearly uh, a guitar-centric band, and it might seem... Uh, puzzling if you don't know this track why something from you know this metallic instrumental would would merit inclusion in this episode other than the fact that you you know if if you only know metallica casually may not even know that they have instrumentals well the reason i want to include them here is that there are two extended passages in in this track and i could have included more (laughs) by the way but i want to include two um that go in directions you might not expect if you don't know Metallica that well. So here's the first.
So I don't know the entire history of guitar-heavy music by any means. I don't even necessarily know the entirety of heavy metal. But this is space metal blues. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that this doesn't happen that often. Again, this is a very, very spacey, uh, you know, sci-fi feeling instrumental as a whole. I mean, it's suggested by by the title. And then, but you have the, the, this blues section in the middle that, you know, at any time that they play this uh, in live performance, whether they play the entire instrumental or or excerpt a portion of it in, in part of a longer medley of instrumental parts, like it always brings the house down in any footage that I've ever seen. And then there's another part uh, a little later on that just has for me just this this completely shocking and unexpected level of beauty. The band's uh, more or less lead guitarist, along with uh, uh, James Hetfield, who's who's more or less the the rhythm guitarist. Kirk Hammett would, at least in some circles, get somewhat vilified in in later years as as becoming a little formulaic in in the nature of his lead parts. Uh, you know, eventually, you know, p- people would notice that he used his wah wah pedal a lot, and you know, crafted a lot of of fairly similar parts. This sounds like nothing else in, in in their catalog. Like I don't even know how. To, I'm not even sure what that is. I don't know if it's if does it have an Eastern tinge. Like the just the, the keyword that always comes to my mind when I hear that rising part is is mystical, and mm. I can't even place why. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just, there, there's just something like just ethereal, kind of otherworldly uh, to that part he's playing, and it's it's just bursting with creativity. So yeah, Orion has these parts, has a lot of other parts that I love. Uh, but you know, whenever I think of of songs that have really interesting guitar parts that just don't get talked about a lot for whatever reason, like this is always one of the ones that comes into my mind pretty early. I am so glad that you picked Orion for us to talk about because I I don't just like it a lot. It is the song that made me realize that I like Metallica because, uh, I mean, for a long time, I thought I didn't like them at all. I mean, I had, I had seen the music video for one, but, uh, for whatever reason, the, the, the song didn't make much of an impression on me at the time. Mostly what I remembered was the ridiculous. I'm so metal faces that Lars Ulrich keeps making, even when he's not hitting the drums, especially hard, but most of What I heard by Metallica was, you know, the from the Black Album and later. um, And I I liked Inner Sandman. I thought it was catchy, but most of that album struck me as just a lot of undifferentiated chunka chunka. And the only reason I bothered to listen to this song was that I was really into DJ Shadow. And on his album Introducing, uh, which I was 
obsessed with for a long time and kind of still am. Uh, he sampled the intro to Orion on the song The Number Song. One, two, three, four, five. Breakdown, baby. And I went through a phase of wanting to track down as many of the, the songs DJ Shadow sampled on introducing and and hear what they sounded like. So Orion was one of those songs I was curious to hear. Well, let's see what this Metallica song sounds like. And I was really surprised. I, I realized, wait, Metallica were kind of prog once upon a time? Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's what made me made me think I'm going to have to actually listen to some of these uh, old thrashy Metallica albums. And it turned out I, I liked them a lot. And I, I think Orion is just, it, it, it remains one of my favorite Metallica songs. What makes it really interesting is it's, um, I think it's largely a Cliff Burton composition. And yes. he was the most talented one. Yeah. I, I may be mistaken about this, but I think he's, he was the one in the band who was classically trained. So he yeah. he knew more about composition than the other guys. So the the stuff he had a hand in it, the music just does more interesting things than your typical, you know, just high octane thrash music does. And I I like you know I I I like and Justice for All a lot. I I think that's that's a very interesting album. But they they lost something huge when Cliff Burton died, and this is a. Major example of that. I had totally forgotten about this song. A lot of people are surprised when I say this, but Master of Puppets was a big favorite of mine when I was in high school. But I haven't listened to the whole album since probably 1998. And this had fallen right out of my mind, which was my own loss. This is fantastic. (laughs) I don't always love tracks that are just enormous guitar solos because at their worst, they're just self-indulgent Joe Satriani garbage. (laughs) But this one is so great. It's interesting and varied and it has a purpose. It's not just endless wanking. You know, one of the things I like about Metallica, although I don't know all their material, is that they usually, or at least often, remembered that melodies exist and are important. Yes. And you need to think things through. You can't just lay a bunch of noise down and call it a song. And this is very melodic. And actually, that point about midway through, the space metal blues part, and after that, when I was listening to it, one of the first things I thought was, this sounds like nothing else matters Hmm. on the Black Album. Yeah, it has some of the same DNA. Yeah, (laughs) There's a secret ballad in the middle of it. There is. And I like the Black Album a lot, which is how you can tell I'm not a real Metallica fan. <laughs> I like it a lot. Of, I like it a lot, too. And like, I almost wonder if Nothing Else Matters like grew out of that section in Orion. That's possible. But I could hear that. I have no proof of this whatsoever. But anyhow, this is completely fab. And I am glad to hear that. Real Metallica fans also like it because I love it. (laughs) All right. If I haven't screwed this up, I think we're back to Amanda. Yep. What's your final pick? My final pick is Black Cat by Janet Jackson.
this one because it's easy to forget, or maybe people didn't realize it in the first place, that Janet Jackson can rock when she wants to. This was her first soul songwriting credit, and it is a straight-up rock song. It's almost metal. Wikipedia describes it as a hard rock, pop rock, dance rock, heavy metal, and glam metal song with arena rock influences. (laughs) Sounds right. That seems to cover all the bases. This is not the kind of thing she's known for, and yet it fits in perfectly in the album that it came from, the absolutely legendary Rhythm Nation, or Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation 1814, to give it its proper name. This was the sixth of seven top five singles off that album, and four of those, including Black Cat, hit number one. It could have been eight top five singles, which would have set an all-time record. But for some reason, State of the World was never issued in physical format in stores, so it didn't count for the Hot 100. But it did get to number five on the radio airplay chart. So how did Black Cat happen? Uh, Janet Jackson wrote it on her own. She played it, uh, I don't know on what, I'm not sure if she plays the guitar, um, for Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, who were her producers for Rhythm Nation, and they listened to that riff she had written, and they said, yeah, we are not the right people for this job. Because they are amazing producers, and part of being amazing at your job is recognizing when something is out of your lane. So they called up Jelly Bean Johnson, who had worked with them back when they were in the time. Uh, we talked about Jam and Lewis back in the Janet Jackson episode, way back at the beginning of the podcast. And so Jelly Bean Johnson co-produced the song with Janet Jackson, and the two of them just knocked it right out of the park. Uh, like I said, it fits right in with the album. It has got, it's got that same sort of industrial beat that runs through the whole thing, but it hits so hard compared to the other stuff. I mean, that guitar, which has, you know, visible smoke coming off it, is played by Dave Barry, not the humor writer <laughs> I mentioned earlier. This is a different David Barry. And Janet was impressed enough with him that she hired him as her touring guitarist and later tour director. The solo uh, partway through the song is kind of generic-ish 80s rock guitar, but it's really well played. And also when Janet Jackson screams guitar at you, you should at least listen to a little bit of it. So (laughs) here it is. (laughs) I love that. Solo. I like it when the singers cue the guitarists. (laughs) I mean, Rock On George one time for me is always going to be my favorite, but (laughs) I love all varieties of that. And a big part of why I included this is because I feel like Black Cat has sort of fallen out of our collective memory. It was a huge hit. But after that god-awful Super Bowl, all her songs mysteriously stopped getting played on the radio. And all of that fantastic music just faded out of our minds. So I wanted to include this reminder to everybody that Janet Jackson is a legend in whatever genre she feels like playing in. Mike, what do you think? Oh, Black Cat Rules. I love just how convincingly it rocks. Like it's, you can tell it's not like a cynical, uh, attempt at a crossover hit like you know michael jackson did beat it so now we have to do one it like it just came Mm -hmm. straight out of janet's imagination and it's just i mean it i like it more than any of this type of heavy metal song you care to name it's it's better than anything on it's it's better than anything on hysteria for for one you know what as much as i love hysteria it is the def leppard would kill to write a song as good as black cat absolutely and not only that, uh, 
no less uh, a, a metal legend than Lemmy Kilmister had expressed interest in in recording a version of this song with Motorhead with Janet Jackson oh, I heard as that. a duet. And I think her label yeah. wouldn't let her do it, which is a shame because it would have been great. Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah. But yeah, you, you're right. This is just as sincere and organic as Miss You Much and Love Would Never Do Without You. Right. Yeah. It's It came yeah. from uh, as just as, as genuine a place as, as any of those songs, which is what yeah. makes it work so well. So as for me, uh, over the last year or so, I have I have finally surrendered and started to uh, work my way into the world of Janet Jackson. And yeah. Yeah. She's great. Again, I don't know the the albums that I have from her extremely well yet, uh, but you know, I, I I've listened to Control. I listened to, to Rhythm Nation. I've listened to uh, was it Velvet Rope. They're all really good. And yeah, the like she's like like there's a lot of music. I I could see like a lot of of musicians from around that era like trying to do something like this and just falling totally on their face. Yeah, and like she. Again, I don't remember if you guys touched on this, you know, however long ago it was that we did this episode. But I I almost feel like her being a Jackson in a certain way in terms of her, like, getting the respect that she deserves, like, in a way, it was almost one of the worst things that ever happened to her. Mm. Like, if she was just, like, an entity under herself, she didn't have the shadow of her brother. Like, I, I almost feel like she would be taken more seriously. Yeah, there might be something to and that. Yeah, again, it's just just a, a, a thought that's just floated around my head. Yeah. Um, but yeah, great song, like great riff. It's just on fire. It, there, there's nothing that feels artificial or stilted about it. It feels mm-hmm. feels really authentic and it's still, but still has like a, a really really. Um, it it has a driving dance beat, but again, like the combination of a, a driving dance beat from around this time and like a really really hard rocking guitar could just sound cheesy as hell, and this does not. No, not at all. Yeah, I'm 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 very enthusiastic about this one. In terms of her being overshadowed, a theory. This has never been confirmed, but a theory about why that final single was never issued in physical format was it's possible that either Janet herself or somebody around her was pulling their punches because Michael was releasing singles around the same time and he cared deeply about chart statistics. Yeah. And I they wanted to let him have it. And that makes me sad. Yeah. I feel like Rhythm Nation and all the singles off Rhythm Nation deserve that title of the most top five singles on an album. It's got, it's one of the few, if not the only to have no hysteria did two hits in three different calendar years. It's, it holds so many records and I wish it held all the records, (laughs) (laughs) but labeled business dynamics combined with family dynamics. I can't imagine how complicated her career was, but we all know. (laughs) Yep. In our hearts, <laughs> Rhythm Nation holds the record. <laughs> For sure. All right, Mike, we're back to you. What do you have now? I have Freeform Guitar from the self-titled album by the Chicago Transit Authority. Thank you. 
60s. <laughs> It's fairly well understood that Terry Kath could play. I mean, you've all heard 25 or 6 to 4. It, 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 he could shred. It's, we know this. It is known. Uh, but unless you're familiar with Chicago's albums, uh, hearing this might completely blindside you. This sounds essentially like a, a cross between Jimi Hendrix, Eddie Van Halen, and Mertz Bow. <laughs> And uh, I think it's also worth noting that uh, Terry Kath's signal chain on this track is guitar amp. There, there are no effects. It is one take live to tape. He's just really. Yeah, he's just making those noises. And it's not clear how <laughs> exactly it's a noise track on an album from the 60s by the same band that did Hard to Say I'm Sorry. Peter Cetera was in this band. All right? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how does this all exist in the same universe? I, I don't understand. It, if this track doesn't melt your brain, then, then that reali realization will. Yeah, that's really all I've got to say about that. It's just, wow, what was that? Yeah, uh... I don't know, about a year or so ago, I uh, realized I didn't know Chicago that well, aside from a handful of sing their singles. So I, I worked through their through the first bunch of studio albums, I think through Hot Streets. I, I ended up liking them through about uh, six or so. I was I was not prepared for this <laughs> <laughs> on the debut. Like as an entity unto itself, it's puzzling, but I love that it exists. Like it, it, it just, it, you know, it's one of those things again, that's just going to highlight like, oh, this, this is a band with a lot more, with a lot more happening uh, in it than I necessarily thought. And it, it definitely just, you know, it fleshes them out a little bit uh, more than I would have thought from their, from their singles. So yeah, I, I'm never going to seek it out, but I'm, I will never skip it if I'm in the mood for, for listening to that album. Matt up. Oh my God. <laughs> There is not really all that much music that I just can't listen to, but I can't listen to this. Fair. Fair enough. It sounds like a motorcycle revving, which is the very ugliest and worst sound in the world to me. It always has been. But it came from Chicago. Yes. Not only the same band that did, does anybody really know what time it is? It's on the same album. Yep. yep. So in terms of fitting the theme of unexpected guitars, A plus, top <laughs> marks. Absolutely. This is the song that sets the curve. But as a piece of music, no thank you. <laughs> Sounds right. I would be very surprised if you didn't hate this, honestly. 
I have to be, I have to stop being so open about the things I like and dislike. It makes it really easy for you guys to torture me. Not untrue. <laughs> All right. Let's finish this off. So my last track is All I Wanna Do by the Beach Boys. This is much nicer. Yes. <laughs> Can't deny that. So a few years ago, I, I stumbled across uh, part of an interview uh, with Mike Love. And uh, one of the things that he was asked uh, was the question of you play long set lists uh, every night, but, you know, you can't get to everything. And, uh, you know, you, you try and slip some things uh, that are off the beaten path in there from time to time. But for the most part, you're playing uh, a pretty standard set of songs. He, and he was asked. Among the songs that you don't get to very often in your in your catalog, like what songs come up most in requests? And almost without hesitation, he said, "All I want to do." So the people come up to him and ask him if if they'll ever play this at some point. All the time. And this is this is one of the the the, the songs that you know. Again, like casual fans of the band won't necessarily know, but but people who know. Like people who are aware of this song just tend to be obsessive over it. And part of the reason that people like this so much is something that people have, have noticed is that there's a case to be made that, you know, if it's not the first shoegaze song, it's really near the beginning. And one of the, the, the major sources of that is the sound of that guitar. So played by Carl Wilson, you know, the guitars in here are, are a mix of 12-string lead guitar, uh, electric sitar. And again, I, I don't know the exact uh, way in which these are balanced with each other, but they create this dreamy, absolutely otherworldly sound. Um, and then in the, in the context of the, the thick production around it, it's, it's absolutely heavenly. Now, something that I've always found interesting is that Brian Wilson, uh, in later years, he said he just didn't like the way it came out. He thought it should have been a, a much cleaner sound. He said it. He mm. would have uh, preferred it had been done with boxed guitars. No, it's great like this. Yes, this is the right way to do it. Like you know, he's entitled to his opinion. All I want to do is, as ever since I, I, I became uh, familiar with uh, what I call the the Smile Fallout albums, and and I got into to, to Sunflower. Like this has always been a massive highlight for me in that era of of the band. And I, I really wanted to include it here. Amanda? Oh, this is dreamy. I've always liked this one. I really enjoy, I think making it sound cleaner would have wrecked it. Of course it would have. Because it sounds like a, it, it, it sounds like a, the guitar is a ray of light cutting through a big puffy cloud. Hmm. And I love the big puffy cloud part. The song is pink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
I don't actually really know the album it came off of. The reason I know this song is because many, many years ago, I think it was in 2004, our friend and co-host Ben Marlin made me a Beach Boys mix that honestly the Beach Boys themselves should license and put out as an official release. It's an incredible overview of hits and deep cuts from their whole recording career. I still listen to it. I'm pretty sure the first song on it is Ding Dang. Oh, that's a great choice. (laughs) All Beach Boys compilations should start with Ding Dang. I might recreate this list on Spotify for our listeners. It's just that good. Um, But it includes all I want to do. And this, it stood out to me right away. It's just so hypnotic and pretty. And I like how they rhymed brightly with nightly. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's a fairly clever rhyme. Now, who is singing this? Mike. Is it? He usually mm-hmm. sounds more nasal than this. He does. That's, no, this, this, this is one of his, his gentlest, uh, most perfect deliveries. It's really pretty. And I, I can rarely distinguish who's singing a Beach Boys song. And just when I think I've got him straightened out, they'll hand a lead vocal to Al Jardine. And that knocks me right back <laughs> yeah. to the beginning. He's not even related to any of them. Why does he sound just like all of them. It's incredible. So yeah, this is this is a great pick. It's uh, I was it, this is another one that confused me a little bit when you first part, put it on the list, but then I realized when I think of this song, the first thing I think of is that kind of boingy little single note guitar. Yep. And it's just wonderful. This sounds more like Beach House. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this. I mean, this the whole production sounds like something out of the 2010s. Like, just put a swap in Victoria Legrand on lead vocals, and this could have, this would fit right in on you know Bloom or any other Beach House album because they all sound the same and they're all equally pretty great. Now, the funny thing is, I have heard this song before because I went through a period where I was going through all the the post. Pet Sounds, Beach Boys albums, or, you know, not that far ahead of it, but, you know, late 60s, early 70s. This was before the Smile Sessions came out or anything like that. So I, you, know, you had to, if you wanted to hear those songs, you had to dig around for them anyway. So I I wanted to find all the little hidden gems on those, all those weird Beach Boys albums. So I, I know I've heard this one, but I, I didn't remember it until, you know, listening to it to... You know, just just this afternoon to get ready for this episode. Yeah. Um, and wow, it's just lovely. Yeah, I think the the production, the production is is the whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a production yeah. song. If you cleaned it up, there wouldn't be <laughs> there wouldn't be anything left of it. Right. You'd scrub it all away. But yeah, if it's not the first shoegaze song, uh, I generally think of shoegaze as being much noisier. But it's definitely you could make a case for it being the first dream pop song. Sure. Mm hmm. Um, it is, it is very dreamy. I would, I would definitely use that word to describe it. Yeah, this is, this should definitely be on more Beach Boys compilations. And if anybody knows how to put together a Beach Boys compilation, it would be Ben. Yeah, absolutely. The the man knows his Beach Boys. (laughs) All right. I think we're, we're all done. This is a lot of fun, guys. It was. A lot of fun. You guys are just the best Mad Libs episode partners. I love doing these. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. You come up with some really good ones. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us wax poetic about 
songs with unexpected guitars, whatever that may mean. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, bugger.